0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today in our series on Ruth, we'll study the final chapter of this book with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's turn to Ruth chapter four, verses one to six, as we listen to a message entitled, Love and the Power of Submission to God.
1: There is something about the love of God that I will never fully understand. God who does not need us, whose happiness is not dependent upon us, whose joy in fellowship of the Trinity is fully complete and was so for eternal ages before you and I were created. This God to whom we contribute nothing and to whom we cannot add even one ounce of joy. And what's more, if you and I cease to exist, would not in any way deplete God's joy. Yet he still loves us with an overwhelming love that simply will not cease. That's difficult to comprehend. And there's another mystery also perplexing. It's something I'll never fully understand about us. Unlike God, we are needy. We need God for every breath we take, for our life, and for any hope of eternal joy. And in spite of that, we often do not love God. And it is this contrast between a completely sufficient God who loves unreservedly and a wholly insufficient humanity that does not that I find myself perplexed. But of course, the story does not end there. For although we are unloving towards God, his love toward us is transforming. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And with this redemptive love, in this love that leads to our forgiveness, God has made us into lovers. 1 John four nineteen simply says, we love because he first loved us. That's the explanation of why anyone becomes both a lover of God and a lover of others. God loved us first. We've come in our study of the book of Ruth to the last chapter, which is the climax of the book. Up until now, we have seen how wrong Naomi was when she believed that the Almighty had dealt very bitterly with her. She had then no comprehension for the love that God would pour out onto her. But as the story unfolds, we come to a chapter when the love of God is seen in chapter 4, which celebrates the marriage between Boaz and Ruth. It is a love story, but as most Bible readers have seen, it is so much more. It is the story of how God has reached out to us in love and has made us the people of love. The book of Ruth presents us with two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Both women are destitute widows, and both women have been cared for by the loving actions of this wealthy noble man by the name of Boaz. And so Naomi connives and plots and plans to bring about a marriage between Boaz and her daughter-in-law Ruth. If Boaz marries Ruth, both women will be cared for and their future will be secure. But Boaz makes it plain that he would marry Ruth, but that this marriage, if it were to happen, would have to be in submission to the revealed will of God found in the law. He says he will redeem Ruth, but there is a Redeemer closer or nearer than he. And he will not violate Scripture to marry Ruth. He will submit his will to the will of God. Even though Boaz by this time loves Ruth, he simply will not violate God's law to marry Ruth. If the closer relative wants to marry her, he will stand aside out of respect for God and his ways. How strange that sounds to modern ears. In our days, romantic feelings and even sexual feelings trump everything. This just sounds like too many rules and regulations standing in the way of true love. But Boaz and Ruth would have seen matters differently. Violate the law of God for their own desires and they have nothing left. No, they will not follow their own hearts. They will follow God for he and not their hearts is their first love, and that commitment will direct their hearts. And so chapter three ends with a drama hanging in the air. Will Boaz and Ruth marry? We can't be sure, but Boaz has made it clear he will act quickly. The morning arrives, and before the sun is up, Ruth has gone home and a discussion ensues between her and Naomi. And now chapter 4 turns the spotlight on Boaz. I'm reading Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Let's unpack some of the drama that greets us on this day that will decide the fate of both Ruth and Naomi to say nothing of Boaz. We have to provide some background to the ancient culture to get a sense of the drama. Boaz's first action involves going up to the gate of the city and sitting down. City gates in the ancient times were intricate structures. They included lookout towers and a series of rooms on either side of the actual gate. But these gates also served as a gathering place for the citizens of that town. Official business was constructed there, as were court proceedings. Political decisions could be made there. Also, this was a place for legal proceedings, including the purchase of items that required a legal transaction. Many of you who know your Bible well will remember that in Proverbs 31, we're told of the virtuous woman, and we find out that this woman had an equally virtuous husband. Proverbs 31 verse 23 says, her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And so most ancient cities had a gathering in which the elders of the city, who were called upon to give leadership, would meet and settle disputes, judge cases, and lead the city. And so, for Boaz to take his seat at the city gate was an indicator that he had come to engage in official business. Now, the next sentence catches us by surprise. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, there are two possibilities here. Perhaps, and we don't know how, perhaps this man was always there so that Boaz knew that he could be counted on in being there— and the other possibility is that this was just a coincidence, but even if that were the case, we know that it was no coincidence. The providence of God so pervades this book, we are in no way surprised that he is found at the gate. Boaz sees him and invites him to sit down, indicating to him that he wished to be engaged in official, even legal, business with him. The word used in our translation, friend, sit down here, is in fact an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew. Like most idioms, they are very hard to translate. What even makes the matter more complex is that the idiom comes with two rhyming words. We have idioms like that in English, like hodgepodge or helter-skelter or heebie-jeebies, two words that rhyme but put together, they mean something very special. I say it's very hard to translate, and indeed, many Bible teachers believe that the translation friend, as in friends sit here, doesn't seem to get the idiom well at all. But there are several other places in the Bible where that same idiom is used. For example, in 2 Kings 6, verse 8, we read, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. The phrase such and such is the same idiom. It means some undisclosed location. And here in Ruth, it must mean some unidentified person. So as the book of Ruth says it, Boaz said, turn aside you, Mr. So-and-so, or turn aside you person whose name is not disclosed in this book. I think that's very interesting because all the way through this book, everyone's name has been mentioned from Elimelech to Chilean and Malon to Ruth and Orpah and Naomi and Boaz, but this man is just Mr. So-and-so, John Doe. Keep that little fact in mind because for some reason, the Bible deliberately holds back the name of the man who could have redeemed Ruth and Naomi and did not do so. It is as if this book is saying that the choice that this man made is so significant that his choice renders him to be an insignificant man. What is the point mentioning him? He was unable to see the plan of God. Now The elders eventually began to assemble at the gate, and Boaz calls ten of them to make matters official. Now, we don't know why 10, but it seems that 10 were required. I mean, perhaps 10 elders served in the way that 12 jurors might serve in our day. And so, with everyone assembled, the drama of the next day begins to unfold. The next verse, verse 3, reads, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. At first glance, this verse seems surprising because it seems that Naomi has land and is selling it. And up till now, we have been portraying her as a destitute woman whose husband lost the family estate, but here she seems to have land. But that seems so unlikely because, as you will recall, she had been out of the country for 10 years. Was it simply lying fallow with no one farming it? Now That doesn't seem possible either. Now there are times when we do need a little insight into the culture of the day to make sense of what we are reading. So let's see if we can unpack this. First notice that the land in question, it says, belonged, past tense, once belonged to Elimelech. And since women did not own land in those days, it's unlikely that Naomi technically owned anything. Well, if that's the case, how could she be selling property? That is, as these two men haggled at the gates, what is it that they could possibly buy? And in this question is the drama of this story. So when we come back, we will see that what happens next is an explanation of love and the power of the submission to God. When we come back,
0: we'll see how this drama continues to unfold in front of the city gates in just a moment. Can I ask you, what does it mean to be the salt and light in a culture that seems increasingly contrary to the values of biblical living? Well, that's the theme of our newest edition of Truth and Life magazine. Dr. Neufeld, in his article entitled Engaging and Impacting the Culture, writes, There has, I fear, been a siege mentality among some Christians regarding culture. Find out how Dr. Newfeld challenges us to batter down the gates and rob Satan of his captives. And guest writer Rafiq Dowji writes how Christians must be the good news before they can share the good news. All this and more in this edition of Truth and Life. To receive your free subscription today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: Boaz stated that Naomi was selling a parcel of land that belonged to her dead husband. At issue is the Hebrew word for selling. In most cases, it simply means to sell something which belongs to you, but at times, it carries a wider range of meaning. In the book of Judges, we're often told that the Lord sold Israel into the hand of their enemy. Here selling has nothing to do with a legal transaction of land. It means that God gave or handed over Israel to others. And if that's how Boaz means it, which seems likely all that Naomi was doing was authorizing the handing over of property to others. In ancient Israel, the idea of land was a sacred idea, for land was created by God, and land was a part of God's covenant with His people. The land they occupied was called the Promised Land. Yes, God owned the land, but He had entrusted Israel with a task of stewardship. They were to govern the land on His behalf. What's more, all the tribes of Israel had inherited a portion of it, and within each tribe, the land was further divided into a series of tracts dedicated to each clan, and then further, each individual family had a portion of it. That Mosaic law made it plain that the land was never to leave the family. If, as in the case of Elimelech, the land had been sold in some fashion, it would return to the original family every 50 years on what was called the year of Jubilee. During Jubilee, all property was returned to the original family, and that's why genealogies in the Bible were so important. They not only stated where you came from, they stated your claim to the land. Now, let us assume that the year of Jubilee is still a long way off. In that case... A person could buy the property back. The person presently on it could not refuse to sell that property. But since women in normal situations did not own land, in the case of Naomi, she would have no original claim to the land. With the death of her husband, she had lost her base of support. In normal circumstances, the land would go to her sons, who would be required to care for their mother, but in this case, both of her sons had also died. Well, who would the land revert to at the Jubilee? And the answer, it would go to the closest relative. And that closest relative was Mr. So-and-so, the man the Bible does not name. But, and this is the key, the closest relative could buy the land back. And since Naomi was authorizing that a close relative could do it, it was on sale if that relative wanted it. And in this case, What would have made this purchase so interesting, and here was a case where you could buy property and never have to give it back. Mr. So-and-so would be adding to his family property forever and never have to give it up to anyone. Now, Pay close attention to Boaz's brilliant negotiating tactics. In verse 3, he presents the deal as an opportunity of a lifetime to buy a Limelech's property for himself. What a rare opportunity to buy the property and keep it permanently and add it to one's own family line. This is a rare opportunity to expand one's capital holdings and increase in wealth and status. Who wouldn't want to seize that? Well, let's continue to read verse 4. Boaz is still speaking. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Can you almost hear the eagerness in Boaz's voice? He makes this seem like quite a prize, a deal that won't last long. If you refuse it, it will be gone forever. Because if you don't, these elders have seen you have refused your right, and you'll never have it in the future. This is your time. And in a half of a heartbeat, without even thinking about it, Mr. So-and-so grabs it. He wants his chance to expand his resources. I don't know if there was a pause between verses 4 and 5, but in verse 5, Boaz hits Mr. So-and-so with the bad news. Verse 5 says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, if this seems like a little bit of bait and switch, that's because it is. Let's understand what Boaz was saying. According to Mosaic law, well, let's read it. Leviticus 25, verse 25 says, If your brother becomes poor, sells a part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Well, that was the law. It was the way to help brothers. But what if the brother was dead? Well, that's where Mr. So-and-so comes in. And he was banking on using the Mosaic law not to help, but to build his own wealth. But there was another law. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 says that when a brother dies, the dead man's brother shall take his brother's wife as his wife, have a son with her, and the son will then inherit the property of the dead man. And if he refuses to do this, then the brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off and spit in his face, and so shame and disgrace him in Israel. Well, that just referred to brothers. But Boaz is daring Mr. So-and-so. You have to do what Deuteronomy 25 requires, and you will never gain that land permanently. That land will be your sacrificial duty to restore the fortunes of the family of Elimelech. And immediately, I imagine, without even a second thought, Mr. So-and-so, or what's-his-name anyway, said, and I read verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And this brings us back to the fact that Samuel, or perhaps some other author of this book, has not named the man, and I think it is a significant thing that he didn't. You see, this man was concerned with his own inheritance, with his own finances, with his own everything. He wanted to preserve his own family name, and isn't it amazing that the one who wanted to preserve his own family name has not been named in the Bible? We don't even have the slightest idea of who he was. It's always been like that, you know. Remember in Genesis 11, the builders of the Tower of Babel? They wanted to build a tower that extends to the heavens that they might make a name for themselves. Anyone remember the names of any one of those guys? But Abraham, a man willing to abandon his inheritance to follow God, anyone remember him? Well, more than half of the human race do today. They vividly remember him from 4,000 years ago. Or take the issue of Pharaoh who opposes Moses. Anyone remember his name? Listen to what Jesus said. I'm reading from Matthew 16:25 to 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? I wonder how many of us have heard or read eulogies at funerals which say something like this. Always remembered, always loved. Well, soon the people that remember will also be dead, and there will be no one to remember and love. The problem with so many of us is that we are content to build a temporary name, and that temporary name will soon be forgotten. The way of love invites us to give ourselves away for the benefit of the other. And in so doing, Jesus promises us that we will find ourselves. It invites us to gamble all that we have on the truths found in the Word of God. It is precisely this that Jesus did, and consequently, he has been given a name which is above every other name. And if we, as his followers, dare to do the same, we will find that God can be trusted. You see, that's what love is. It is sacrifice. It is surrender. And that's what Boaz did for Ruth and for Naomi. He loved them so much that he gave them back their lives. Love for him was not to have a young woman, half his age, as his personal prize, as his trophy wife. It was rather to provide this woman and her mother-in-law with a future, and that is the picture of God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's the picture of true love when it is found among us, submissive to the will of God, and in submitting to God, we find that we can give our lives away, and so find our lives in the end.
0: Thanks, John, for today's message. Uh, I was thinking about the book of Ruth and how it provides such a great example of redemption. Uh, It's a model of true love and even submission. But what do you think guys ought to learn from Boaz's example?
1: What an interesting question that is, because the book of Ruth is the book of Ruth. It's the book that's named after a woman, and it's surprising that men have something to learn from it, but we really do. And uh, Boaz's example is an example for all men. I mean, it's an example of sacrifice. But it's very similar to what Jesus taught husbands to do in relationship to their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the example of Christ's sacrificial love is our example. And, And in this, I think that we need to recapture a value that men used to have. I'm afraid that many men today think that the highest value that they can have is to do well at their job or to accomplish something great. But what if we thought that the greatest value that we had was to sacrifice ourselves for our wives and our children, that we did our job so that our children and our wives could live well? I think that's there in the book of Ruth, and I think we need to take that to heart. And
0: John, I think that's so true because we have this overwhelming sense, I think, in our culture today that men are hunters and gatherers and we need to provide uh, riches, houses, cars, whatever the case might be. But what in essence we're doing is we're creating this hollowness in our relationship with our spouse.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Now, I think many men do show their love in the way of providing and I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we need to see the end goal and I think you've put your finger on it. The end goal is to love to care for and to sacrifice ourselves for. I think that's it. What a great lesson, and a great lesson for us guys as well.
0: Well, thanks so much, John, and we look forward to hearing more tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. What a fascinating story we find about the love of Ruth and Boaz. Moreover, in these verses, we get an insight into the sacrificial love shown by Boaz in being her redeemer and his submission to the will of God. Perhaps this book should be focused a bit more on the godly example he provides for men. I hope that today's message has enriched your journey of faith as we're reminded what love truly looks like when we submit to God and give ourselves up for another, modeling the very thing that Christ did for each of us. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues to wrap up his final week in the book of Ruth, looking at more principles about love found there. Well, we're well on our way to reaching our 2016 target of 500 monthly partners through our Partner to Tell campaign. In fact, I think there is an excellent chance we can hit this important partnership target much sooner than December with your help. Monthly partners are essential to the daily Bible teaching programs that you hear every day, essential to sustain them, essential in allowing us to expand the opportunity to reach even more people across Canada with Bible teaching you can trust. So please consider if this might be an opportunity for you to join this ministry in this critical way partner to tell today and help us lead even more people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca.